Hello, everyone. So while we uh, get more people to join, have you seen the most recent news about Avsanyakova? So for those who don't know, uh, Avsanyakova left Russia after she threw a little stint on the state TV that was broadcasting live, saying that the, the state channel was broadcasting falsehoods. And that move was widely hailed in the West. After that, she left Russia. She went to Germany, was hired by one of the outlets there, worked for a bit. Uh, within the first few days of her work there, she promoted lifting sanctions from Russia, which was a bit surprising. Uh, and after that, she went to Ukraine, was not welcomed there uh, by a large number of people. And after that, she was kicked out. Well, she wasn't really kicked out, but she wasn't not really accepted. Uh, nobody really kicked her out. And now she's back in Russia. So something tells me that it was a, an elaborate operation by the Russian intelligence services to increase influence abroad. But it didn't work out. Now she's back in Russia. Uh, it is actually reported by the Russian side. So it's not that surprising. All right. So hopefully we'll get Denise to join us today because um, last time he was around, he he was there here to protect Russia. And I, I, and I really liked going back and forth. And if anyone wants to speak your slots and ask questions, just request. Um, and yeah. So we'll start from a bit of a history. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the opposition parties and imperialism in Russia. Uh, the two topics might sound a little bit confusing, but they're actually tightly intertwined, at least when it comes to the Russian state, the modern, the contemporary Russian Federation. Obviously, there was no opposition within the uh, Soviet empire, at least not until the late 1980s, when Gorbachev allowed some local movements, um, which uh, eventually led to the increase of nationalist identities and a, a decided move towards the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I'll, some something I need to make uh, obvious here is that Gorbachev was not a savior. He was not someone who was trying to uh, promote uh, social liberties and freedom of speech. All of those moves that he did were were put in place to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union. Eventually, those moves were miscalculated, and we know the rest is history. So now we get contemporary Russia, Russia that uh, we know today. The Russian Federation appeared in 1991. A uh, large number of parties uh, sprung out. The most prominent party that is currently running the show, uh, that is known as United Russia or United Russia was not on the scene just yet. Uh, it was it came a bit later. Um, a number of parties did pop up, including the modern day uh, party of communist uh, that is being run by Zuganov. Uh, the, and another opposition party did sprung up uh, led by uh, Zhirinovsky. Um, he actually recently passed away, but Zhirinovsky came to prominence uh, actually at the end of the 80s uh, something tells me, and at least uh, many journalists in, in the Russian Federation like to point out that Vladimir Zhirinovsky was a, an elaborate KGB op. He was a, a person who created a facade of uh, political debates within the Soviet Union, uh, when in reality he was just performing tasks for the KGB, essentially uh, creating a puppet opposition party. 
And while am I, why, why am I bringing it up? This is important because this is currently the practice. This is the practice that is being used by the Russian Federation. They, they are actively used it in the 1990s, but it is extensively used right now. And the reason I'm bringing it up because in the current, uh, the current composition of the Russian state Duma, they have uh, representatives primarily from the principal party uh, the United Russia, Putin's party. And so there is a large number of representatives from the party of the communists and from the party called LDPR, liberal democratic. Can anyone else hear party. Maddie? Raise your hand if you can hear him. Hold on, Maddie. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. Now there you are again. Apologies. Uh, I'll try to speak up. I have I might have some technical issues with my uh, headset. So with the we've got the current state Duma. Uh, I'll repeat that because it's important. We've we've got primarily members of the of from United Russia, which is Putin's party. Uh, we've also got uh, representatives from the Communist Party, and we've got representatives from LDPR or Liberal Democratic Party of the Russian Federation, uh, which was pretty much set up by Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Uh, but we've also got uh, parties that are registered within the Russian Federation that are that have no seats uh, within the current composition of the State Duma. Uh, one of the parties that is worth noting, there, there are quite a few, but I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, one of the parties that is worth noting is Yablaka or Apple. Uh, that was established back in the 90s. The, the principal leader uh, in the early, late 90s and early 2000s was Yevlinsky and the reason I bring it up because him up because he's got a lot of interesting to, things to say he's currently not not active on the political scene he's 70 years old um, he took an active stance um, against uh, United Russia against Putin against uh, the aggressive policies of the Russian Federation but something tells me that he got carried away from uh, from his active political life back in the 90s his, one of his sons was kidnapped um and yeah he he went through a lot and now he's old uh he's not that active he had a few things to say he's uh, he posts on uh, he he does provide interviews he does post articles every once in a while but he's not that influential anymore back back in the 90s and early 2000s he was an important voice uh, he, another person that many of you might know is Nemtsov. Uh, he, uh, he's someone that I, I admire a lot. Of course, he's not with us anymore. He was assassinated back in 2015. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up because he, he was always active and he was always in the opposition of whatever the, uh, the Russian state was doing incorrectly. And it didn't really matter who was in charge, whether it was Yeltsin back in the 90s, whether it was uh, it was Putin, whether it was Medvedev. Um, and back in the 90s, uh, Nemtsov was actively in opposition of the war of aggression of the Russian Federation against the Chechen Republic of Echkeria during the first war. He uh, organized the parents and specifically mothers of those soldiers, Russian soldiers that were deployed uh, to the front lines in Yechkeria. Ch and because of him, I, well, he was, I shouldn't say he was the only factor, but he was one of the, uh, one of the reasons why the first war in Yechkeria was so unpopular. 
because because he actively interviews mothers and parents of those soldiers who who basically went missing or were killed in Ishkeria. He made all of that information public. He compiled lists. Unfortunately, with the current full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we don't see anyone doing that. We don't see uh, anyone from Navalny's team. We don't see anyone from the the other uh, political activist circles doing anything of the sorts. There, there could be many factors involved, but we'll leave it for later for the discussion section. All right, so Yemtsov, going back to the, this interesting uh, person, <laughs> uh, I, I'd even call him a giant in, uh, in Russia's contemporary history, but uh, he was actively he, he was actively suppressed. Uh, he liked to reveal a lot of information. Uh, for example, he produced a number of articles, uh, some of which I might eventually translate into English and post, uh, explaining how the annexation of Crimea was not a correct move uh, for the Russian state. He uh, explained in detail how the war in Ukraine that was started by the Russian Federation, he produced uh, a large number of reports explaining and detailing how the Russian Federation was directly involved in the war in Donbass in 2014 and 2015, and how the annexation of Crimea could, could eventually lead to the rise of separatism within the Russian state itself. Uh, I'll read you one of the quotes. Uh, the war with Ukraine will lead to un unwanted tendencies and to a rise in separatism within Russia because things like that tend to boomerang. Um, he, he also brought out how in 2014, a, a move for greater federalization of the Russian Federation was suppressed. Uh, a number of movements or a number of uh, rallies were organized uh, in, in Siberia, specifically in the, in, the t in the city of Novosibirsk, but they were eventually canceled. Um, so that was all happening concurrently within the Russian state itself. So things like that, uh, things like rallies for greater federalization within Russia are uh, no longer happening. At least they, they're being actively suppressed since 2014. Uh, you might wonder, what is federalization? Uh, the, officially, the Russian state is a federation, and greater federalization generally means uh, granting greater autonomy and greater agency to the federal subjects, which includes, but not limited to, to the uh, autonomous republics, but also the regions within the Russian state. Uh, those regions uh, were okrugs or autonomous oblasts are not limited to uh, territories that are dominated by ethnic minorities. Many of those regions, actually majority of those regions are dominated by ethnic Russians themselves. So that is that is not exactly surprising. Um, so Boris Nemtsov was killed, uh, assassinated in 2015. Uh, I suspect that the main reason why he was assassinated because he was producing large number of exposés uh, revealing how the Russian state was directly responsible for the war in Donbas. He explained that the war in Donbas was actually an aggression by the Russian Federation. He produced a list of units involved. He produced a list of uh, testimonies, uh, witness accounts by some of the soldiers involved. Um, so, and that eventually ended his life, unfortunately. Uh, officially, the 
the assailants or any those who are responsible were punished officially uh but in reality it's almost impossible by now to know but we all can make educated guesses who's actually directly responsible for his assassination all right so now we move on and uh i want to go back to yevlinsky because as i mentioned before he he's someone that i i have quite a bit of respect for but unfortunately he decided to retire from the political scene because he was pressured a lot uh by the russian states uh he was pressured a lot by the opposition uh, by by the ruling party um and by the security apparatus um he in 2021 produced um an interesting article that is very long um it is worth a read uh it is unfortunately in russian uh so eventually us uh, i'll i'll translate it possibly in its entirety but he explains the way the russian state is currently organized and his uh the way he understands it uh i will point out a few things that i found interesting and i think what people in the west uh unfortunately do not comprehend uh fully uh first off half of this article is dedicated to the criticism of the most prominent opposition figure within the russian state and of course i'm talking about navalny he points out that uh navalny and his staff are not exactly uh the kind of opposition that is beneficial for russia because they primarily exploit populism a tool that is actively being used by putin himself so at the end of the day after he explains uh his uh arguments he sums up that uh, navalny is not that different from putin after he published this piece he was widely criticized by the russian liberal media um unfortunately today the topic is not the russian liberal media so i will not discuss my opinions on them but uh yeah so, so let's uh, let's go point by points so the first 10 years of changes uh that's one of the sections in of the article uh where he uh, points out that the putin got reelected twice uh or even three if well twice because he had two periods and there was a little switcheroo with medvedev but in reality he had four elections so far the third election happened 2012 uh fourth election happened 2018 and uh most recently the, the, there were some changes in the russian constitution that allowed putin to stay in power until 2036 So legally he can stay in power until 2036. That is another 14 years. Uh he points out how uh Russia is directly responsible for the war in Donbas, how Russia uh, annexed the Crimean Peninsula. He points out how in the past 10 years uh, as of 2021 uh Russia got involved in the civil war in Syria. He points out how the Russian PMCs are involved in multiple co- conflicts in Africa including Mali and the Central African Republic. Uh he points out how the Russian legislation was massively edited to benefit the regime and how the changes in legislation practically eliminates all free- freedom of speech. Uh something we saw extensively exercised and and implemented in February at the launch of the full-scale invasion 
And he points out how the Russian state uh, ramped up their propaganda efforts uh, finding an external enemy. He doesn't say it explicitly, but I'm pretty sure he means the West and he means specifically Ukraine, uh, because we all know that over the past eight years, Ukraine has, has been painted by the Russian propaganda as a puppet of the West, which is laughable. All right. So um, those are his, uh, that, that was his debrief of the past developments over the past 10 years or 11 years as of now. Uh, now we move on to the section where he criticizes Navalny. So these are not my criticisms. These are not criticisms by someone who's outside of Russia. These are criticisms by a prominent Russian politician, at least in the past, um, who, who was quiet, um, who had a lot of visibility in the 90s, who had a lot of visibility in the early 2000s. Uh, he, he's someone who never joined uh, Putin's party. He, he's someone who never uh, fully merged with the system. So I think such disclaimers are important because I'm going to move on uh, into the section where he actually criticizes Navalny. All right. So uh, first off, he does point out that uh, Navalny's imprisonment is a political move, but he he points out that Navalny is being actively used as a tool um, by the internal power struggles within the uh, 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 circles of elite within the Russian state. So let me explain this point a bit because he doesn't delve too deep into it. Oh, uh, the Russian state, uh, as we know, uh, is being run, uh, at least from the outside, it seems, by a single person. But in reality, it is a system that is set up by a circle that most commonly being called the Siloviki. So Putin is just a figurehead, uh, something that uh, was uh, briefly touched upon by Yevlinsky himself, but at the end of the day, uh, Putin is the head honcho, he's the face of the system, but he's not who makes all the decision, and he's not the uh, fulcrum of the system. The fulcrum of the system is a limited circle of people that are primarily coming from the circle, uh, from, from the security apparatus of the states. So think of the people like Patrushev, uh, Bortnikov, Ivanov, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, if you haven't noticed, I, I prefer to pronounce their names the way they would pronounce them. So those circles might seem to be unified from the outside, but in reality, I suspect there are power struggles within those circles. Obviously, I do not have any solid evidence. I do not have... Uh, conclusive proof that I might just throw out in, into the nest and, and prove to you that the circles are not unified. Uh, are, but uh, there's some anecdotal evidence that we can uh, we can reference. Uh, you remember these little switcheroo between Putin and Medvedev that I mentioned uh, a bit ago. So Medvedev was not someone that Putin initially chose as his temporary successor. Uh, that was uh, Sergei Ivanov. Uh, Sergei Ivanov is someone who was a, a minister of defense. Uh, he was someone who was head of the uh, Russian Security Council. Um, and oh, when the little uh, switcheroo happened, uh, right before the switcheroo happened, 
uh, he was uh, chosen for a little while, for a short period of time, as his successor uh, for the uh, temporary period. But uh, while the the pre-election campaign was happening, uh, Putin and his closest allies started to notice that Ivanov started to organize his own little power circle, uh, which means that he was not uh, planning to surrender power after his term was up. He was planning to keep the presidential seat and ensure that Putin does not take over. So naturally, Ivanov was no longer the uh, the contender or the main candidate to take over the seat uh, for Putin. And Medvedev was chosen as someone who had no connections, uh, who had uh, no reputation within the political elites of the Russian Federation. And as we know from history, uh, Medvedev stayed in power for a little for a little while, and he surrendered the seat back to Putin. So everything worked out for Putin. So Ivanov was someone uh, especially dangerous. He's still he's still one of the political elites. Uh, as I mentioned, he was uh, he headed the Security Council um, in first in the, in the 1990s, uh, uh, at the end of the 90s until 2001, and then he was appointed Minister of Defense up until 2007. Uh, then he was appointed as the first deputy prime minister uh, under uh, under Medvedev, uh, and after that, given that he presented some dangers to the ruling elites or the uh, Putin circle, uh, he was demoted. <laughs> He's currently serving as a special representative of the president of Russia on the issues of env- environmental activities, ecology, and transport. So. Not exactly a an influential position, but he's still out there. He's, he's still one of the circles, so he potentially still uh, possesses some power. So uh, the reason I'm mentioning it, it's, uh, for those who just joined, uh, is because he's not an opposition figure. He's still within the within the power circles, uh, but it's important to point out that the power circles within within the Kremlin are not unified. Uh, they they do squabble. Uh, and, and, and this piece of evidence uh, is something I can offer to you, at least for now. And the reason I bring it up, because uh, whenever there is a power struggle within the circles, they like to use um, third-party tools. They like to use the so-called useful idiots within the Russian Federation uh, to uh, influence or undermine the political capital of uh, those who are in power, who are not uh, fitting them, or who are not in line with them. And this is important because now we go back to Navalny. Of course, we could spin conspiracy theories here, saying that Navalny is a Kremlin project. He could very well be, but we don't have such evidence just yet. Uh, But uh, at least what Yevlinsky is claiming is that Navalny is a tool that is being used uh, by the political elites who are currently in power, because as I said, they are not unified. Um, at least uh, when you look, when you really start digging into it. All right, let me uh, go back to the article and move on to the other points that Ivlinsky brings up. Um, sorry, give me just a moment. Technical issues. 
Uh, in the meantime, if anyone has any questions, feel free to come up. Uh, Maggie's taking care of that. It's uh, it's kind of hard to respond to DMs and uh, speaker requests while I'm doing this. Uh, but yeah, I, ideally, I don't want to. I don't want this to be a lecture. If uh, we want to have a discussion, I'm fully open to it. All right. So also, Maddie, we've had a request for um, some of the articles that you were referring to. Okay, so I'll post them uh, in untranslated form after we finish. So ideally, I don't want to go above 90 minutes or even even above 60 minutes because people tend to get tired because these topics are very loaded. So I'll try to keep it at 60 minutes. And after we finish, I will post the materials that I reference um, in the attachment to the uh, to the recording. So uh, they will not be translated. They will be all in Russian. So uh, so you can use you can still use Google Translate, and hopefully most of the meaning will be retained. All right. So moving on, um, the uh, Yevlinsky mentions that uh, Navalny acts nothing more like a a Zaro or or a, a, a social justice fighter who only fights for against corruption. While it is a good political platform to run on. In reality, he doesn't offer any real solutions. Uh, he only likes to point out that there are problems within the state. And uh, the reason he runs down this platform, because everyone within the Russian state already knows that there are gigantic problems with corruption uh, within the Russian Federation anyway. So it resonates with the masses. Um, and, it's, and it explains why Navalny is nothing more than a populist. Uh, something else he points out is that uh, Navalny can actually be uh, potentially very dangerous because he also uh, runs on a nationalist platform. I think um, if you've been following me or some of the Ukrainians for at least some time, you've seen us posting uh, little tweets or even threads explaining how Navalny in the past uh, was spotted at uh, far right-wing rallies uh, that were donning the Russian imperial flag, uh, which is the typical Russian flag with uh, black, yellow, and white stripes. Uh, if you remember the space from last week, I talked about the Russian imperial movement. So that is exactly the flag that the specific uh, neo-Nazi terrorist organization is using. Uh, something he points out as well is that um, while uh, there were there was a string of assassinations within Russia, uh, specifically the assassination by neo-Nazis in 2008 of a uh, hu human rights activist, Stanislav Markelov, and a Russian journalist, Anastasia Baburova, uh, those were assassinated in 2009 in Moscow by neo-Nazis. Navalny was actually involved in organizing the so-called Russian marches. That was happening in 2009. So while neo-Nazis were running around uh, killing uh, political activists and uh, those who protect human rights within Russia, uh, Navalny was organizing far-right uh, demonstrations and rallies. Uh, the, the Russian marches, something I need to point out is uh, they're called Ruski Marshi. Uh, if you actually correctly translate those, uh, they actually mean ethnic Russian marches. Uh, Yevlinsky himself also points out that uh, Navalny never uh, uh, hid his uh, far-right views, especially when the war 
with Georgia where the the Russian invasion of Georgia was unfolding and especially when the Russian invasion uh, of Donbas was happening in 2014 and 2015. Uh, with Georgia, I will post a link uh, after uh, this space is over where a Georgian newspaper uh, explains how Navalny was using an extremely racist and an extremely aggressive uh, lingo against the Georgian state and, and their Georgian nation. And that article is actually in English, so you'll have an easy time reading it. Um, but something else that is very interesting is that Navalny had an interview uh, that was posted on YouTube with uh, Strelkov Girkin. If you've been following the most recent stage of the war, you should know who that is. Uh, that is a Russian nationalist, or I should even say a Russian ultra-nationalist. And uh, I'm sure that many Ukrainians would support me uh, calling him a neo-Nazi who pretty much orchestrated many of the um, acts of aggression of the Russian Federation within uh, Ukraine, and specifically in the Donbass region in 2014 and 2015. Uh, it's been uh, extensively shown that uh, Girkin is actually an FSB agent who was yanked out out of the Russian far-right circles as uh, closely associated with the Russian National uh, Union of the 90s. So he's not someone uh, who's, with whom you want to associate if you want to have any political validity, any political capital. But uh, Navalny did not shy away from interviewing him. Another thing uh, that is important to note is that Strelkov Girkin is responsible is one of the people who's responsible for the downing of the airliner uh, MH17. So, uh, and that that was proven. That was proven by the International Court of Justice. So I'm not I'm not making that up. So if you if you're a, pol a political figure, or at least you claim to be, and you you run on on a platform uh, that is in opposition to the current authorities, and you want to have at least some validity, you probably don't want to associate yourself with someone who's a recognized war criminal. All right, so moving on. Uh, the Yevlinsky also uh, references Valeria Novodvorskaya. Uh, Novodvorskaya is, is not a politician. She's, she's not with us anymore. She passed away of natural causes. Within the Russian Federation, uh, she was a, an avid critic of Putin, she was an avid critic of the uh, dictatorship that was uh, built within the Russian Federation, uh, but she was never a politician. Um, she was an expert. She was a pundit. Uh, she was a very interesting person to listen to. And this is what she had to say about Navalny. Uh, back in 2011, that was 10 years, uh, 11 years ago. Uh, so Navalny might become the future leader of the crazed crowds, and at that he might become someone with a Nazi inclination. His fight with corruption might lead to something that is very similar what has happened, what did transpire in Belarus. Uh, Lukashenko appealed to the crowds of Belarus because he uh, promised them to fight against corruption. This easily um, fooled the people of Belarus, and the uh, the dumbstruck intelligentsia within Belarus supported him, um, and 
at the end of the day, he re they realized that they couldn't trust him. And today we know what is happening in Belarus. Mass arrests um, are very common. Um, and if someone spends time in prison, it doesn't really mean much. Uh, many Bolsheviks also spent time in prison. Think of Zdrzhinsky. He spent 10 times in, in prison. Hitler also spent time in prison. Unfortunately, he did not spend more than 15 years. Maybe we could have avoided World War II. If crowds follow Navalny, I think we can expect fascism. The wave that is uh, rising right now, the tide that is rising right now, is not against Putin. Uh, the, this tide is rising not for a uh, democratic future of Russia, but the opposite. This tide is rising because communism is gone and it is rising for the forthcoming fascism. Navalny is one of the potential leaders of this doom that awaits Russia. So that was my translation of what Novodvorskaya said about Navalny in 2011. So <laughs> this is this is not coming from me. This is coming from uh, Valeria Novodvorskaya. So I'll repeat that name again. Uh, she's uh, she definitely has a lot of well, she had a lot of uh, political capital and expertise then. Uh, someone like me. All right. So moving on to Yevlinsky's argumentation, uh, we also uh, he also likes to point out uh, that uh, Navalny and his uh, his circle are not exactly concerned with the fates of the of the citizens of the Russian Federation. Uh, he, uh, sorry, a bit, uh, getting a bit lost sometimes. Uh, he's not for democratic Russia. This is this is not exactly that. If you notice, uh, uh, he never actually promotes uh, free Russian elections. He actually never promotes explicitly, and he doesn't make it his main political platform uh, to build a truly federalized Russia. He doesn't promote. A truly democratic or liberal Russia. His main platform is the fight against corruption uh, since 2012, 2011. And before that, he actively tried to appeal to the far-right crowds within the Russian states. So uh, one might argue that Navalny is, uh, has given up on the, on the far-right views that he has, but it's kind of hard to make such a, a judgment um, we're trying to be rational here. We don't want to um, uh, pigeonhole someone in a in a far right uh, group just yet. But something uh, that does make me want to believe that he still and uh, retains his far rights and even neo Nazi movements is that he he never he never went back and he never uh, criticized his own views. He never went back and. Uh, he's never taken back any of the words that he uh, pronounced. He he never he never retorted any of the statements that he made about Georgia. He never retorted any of the statements that he made about the ethnic minorities within Russia. So this is why I tend to believe that he still retains those far right views. So he might not be saying them now, uh, but he did say some of those uh, quite recently when he was asked about the Crimean Peninsula. So. In one of the interviews, uh, he was asked whether he views the Crimean Peninsula to be part of Russia or part of Ukraine. 
to which he simply responded that uh, Crimea is not a sandwich that could be handed back and forth. Um, so uh, the way I interpreted it as a native Russian speaker is that he has no plans of giving it back. So uh, that is, uh, at least that is my analysis. Okay, let's go back to Yublinsky, someone who actually knows a lot more than I do and has a lot of experience. All right, so... Um, when it relates to whether supporting or not supporting Navalny as a politician, uh, every person needs to make that decision for themselves, uh, Yevlinsky claims. But uh, when that decision is being made, every person needs to understand that uh, democratic Russia would mean uh, respect to uh, the human rights, liberties, and life without fear of repressions. Uh, such views are not compatible with the views and policies that Navalny promotes. What Navalny promotes is not compatible with democratic Russia or civil liberties. So, yeah. Um, all right, so he the article is very long. I, I could uh, go on for at least another hour. Okay, we've got another request. Hi, Denise, how are you? So, yeah, I'm I'm going going over an article uh, that was uh, published by Yevlinsky back in 2021, where he discusses uh, Navalny and he discusses the state of affairs within the Russian opposition. Um, I don't know if you've seen it before. Have you? Uh, I think I did. And uh, the only thing I have to say about it is that Navalny changed a little bit. So, yeah, he is still quite terrifying for a person like me. So I'm for every possible liberty that is not uh, trying to kill anyone. But still, uh, Navalny is quite concerning. But about this article and about all the things that's happening to him, uh, I wanted to say that he tried to change and he told nice things like that uh, Russia doesn't need a next leader, but it needs some uh, like change of uh, changing the leaders. Like you need a couple of five to seven cycles to make it a proper country. And that's what I can agree with. And that's what I can root for. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy that you joined because I don't want to be someone who's just lambasting Russia and just criticizing uh, everything starting from opposition and the regime. So it's good to have you here uh, as someone who might actually defend him. Um, all right, so let's move on with this article. It's, it's quite long. I will not go over every single point he made, uh, but... Uh, another point that is uh, that is very relevant point that uh, he doesn't say directly, but I kind of made that conclusion for myself is that the Russian people tend to uh, resort to the concept of a single tsar that is uh, that is bad, and uh, at the end of the day, if a new tsar comes, they they might uh, get complacent and and satisfied with a new leadership. When in reality, they they should always be critical of any authorities that are in power. Uh, something that the Russian people have not learned just yet, because uh, in reality, true, true democracy, if it ever existed, it only existed for a very brief period of time and uh, the long history of the uh, the Russian people. Uh, he does bring up that uh, brief, brief periods. He talks about 
uh, the constitutional crisis about 1993, uh, very briefly, um, and um, that that kind of harkens back to the points that uh, were made multiple times by many people in the past that potentially democracy did exist in Russia, but for a very brief period of time between 1991 and 1993, when Yeltsin tried to introduce some reforms uh, and the, the Russian state Duma simply opposed them. So Yeltsin decided to use brute force to uh, suppress any dissenting opinions. All right, let's, uh, let's move on um, to some of the other. So uh, let's, uh, Let's stop talking about Yevlinsky. I'll, I'll post an art, the article and you'll have a read. It's, it's very long, but I highly recommend everyone uh, reading it. Um, another opposition figure that I actually, I actually like is uh, Vladimir Karamurza. Um, what do you think about him, Denise? Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think he's awesome. And he did the thing that was kind of impossible for his time because... Right now, it seems like everyone can do like sanctions over Russia or over any other country, but that was another thing when he did his shit. Uh, so yeah, he just changed everything in the social and geographical positions of Russia or any other country. So yeah, Vladimir Karmorza is a hero and he needs to be free, not the state he is right now. That's what I think. For those who pe- people who don't know, Vladimir Karamazov was arrested. Um, he, his father was uh, actually a close associate of Boris Tumtsov. Um And after his uh, his father retired and passed away, he uh, he decided to inherit his position and actively collaborated with Nimtsov as well. Uh, but after Nimtsov was assassinated, he kind of assumed that that role that he tried to fill in the shoes that Nimtsov was uh, um, and tried to carry on the torch. That's basically what I'm trying to say. Uh, So when when the full-scale invasion started, he was actively criticizing it um, and he was uh, in in direct contact with the Western press trying to explain uh, the way things are within the Russian states. But back in April, he was arrested. Um, Obviously, the the charges that that are that he's facing are obviously trumped up. Um, he's uh, officially being charged with uh, discrediting and uh, and of uh, the armed forces of the Russian Federation and libel uh, uh, targeting the, the armed forces of the Russian Federation. Those are the charges, right, Denise? Yeah, I suppose so. But uh, his main deed and the main thing you can tell about him is that he made the list of Magnitsky and that's uh, why everybody in Russia, every policeman, every person of power hates him. Uh, So yeah, that's why he's prosecuted right now. Yeah, it's it's another thing that we should mention as well. Uh, Bill Bratter, an American banker, investment banker, He's not a political figure. He's he's not a politician. He he did get involved into in, in the politics uh, for for a reason. Bill Browder worked actively in the 1990s, uh, setting up uh, foreign investment projects within the Russian oil and gas sector. Uh, but after after Putin came to power in 1999, um, he, all of the investments and all, everything, all the capital that he earned within the Russian state was uh, well, to put it nicely, nationalized and taken away. But to put it not nicely, 
basically stolen and or uh, yeah taken away <laughs> by force and uh, who's that magnitsky uh, who's that mysterious person after whom the the specific list is named uh, magnitsky was an attorney uh, who represented bill bradder's interests uh, within the russian state he's someone who tried to fight uh, those misappropriations of funds uh, in a legal manner uh, of course the uh, old effects were on on bill bradder's side so magnitsky uh, Create, uh, was building a very solid case. And because of that, uh, he was assassinated. And I, I, I can't exactly remember when Magnitsky was assassinated. When was that, Denise? Do you remember? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm totally sorry. I'm on the go. Yeah, so it was like in 2012 or 2010 or something like this. So yeah, that uh, happened in the past 10, 15 years. I, I can't remember exactly. So after, after his assassination, Bill Bradder lobbied with uh, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, with the U.S. Congress to create a list of everyone who is directly responsible for the suppression of, uh, of, the, of freedom of speech and who is directly responsible for um, assassinations and uh, su- suppressions of uh, civil liberties within the Russian states. Uh, many politicians made that list, and uh, Karamorza was uh, one of the people who actually. Uh, collaborated on the creation of that list and adding names to the list. So, yeah, he, uh, Karamorza is definitely not someone who's uh, on the good side when it comes to the political elites within the Russian Federation. So, um, but there's something I need to say about Karamorza. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry, uh, just one second. So, uh, he was not just collaborating, but he was the person who made all the work, uh, most of the work, because uh, he was the one who actually spoke English uh, pretty good, and that's why he was the one who lobbied. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, he lobbied all the way for the Magnitsky list, and that's how it happened. And so he's one of the responsibles for this list. Got it. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I knew that he was heavily involved, but I didn't realize that uh, his influence was so heavy. He um, was like the only one who did it. Uh, so yeah, probably. I'm sorry. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, that's relevant. Um, but yeah, so but there's one thing that I uh, that I really want to note is that uh, Karamorza is not an ethnic right. So do I see? Ever, what do you think, Denise? Do you ever see him? Uh, gaining traction with a wider public, with a wider Russian public, would someone, would an average Russian person vote for someone like him if he ever runs? Uh, I don't think so. I think that he was always in the shadows of people who were like more charismatic or something like this. So yeah, he was like a shadow figure behind bigger processes. And that's quite unfair. At my point, uh, I think that he deserves a lot more attention and a lot more appreciation from Russian people uh, because uh, the funny thing about the list of Magnitsky is that when Karmurza was lobbying for this list that is directly targeting people from uh, politic circles, uh, he was at the same point targeting at banning the list of uh, legislations that were against Russian people. 
so yeah each time uh, russians say that uh, all the sanctions are against them uh, no actually karmurza tried to leave the burden and make it better for ordinary people and make it worse for people who are in charge so yeah karmurza is quite a hero and i don't think any of russians know about him anything so like only people who are heavily in the politics like me or people who just follow the news they know who he is but not the actual russians who just live their life yeah uh maggie thank you for this uh tina said that he was killed in 2009 no we're talking about his son we're talking about his son so yeah there are two karamurzas there's karamurza senior and there's Kar- Kar- karamurza junior so karamurza senior is gone well yeah <laughs> killed uh but uh karamurza junior is currently in prison he was arrested in april this past april uh he was arrested immediately following an interview that he was giving um i think to the cnn all right so let's um let's move on so yeah karamurza is definitely not running on a populist platform he's um he's not known widely known but at the same time um i'm of a belief myself that even if he had some uh a lot of visibility within the russian states he's not someone who an average uh, citizen and and the russian federation would actually excuse me vote for because he doesn't have that russian sounding last name his uh, last name is actually of tatar origin uh it roughly translates as black lord so that's a uh, that's a pretty cool last name um and uh yeah uh, at least from given that the russian state was heavily uh, focused on an ethnocentric platform for, especially for the past 20 years uh i find it hard to believe that someone who's not an ethnic russian would would even have a, the slightest chance of uh, of gaining any traction uh, if there are ever fair elections within the federation um and navalny knows that and that's why he exploited this uh, the this ethnocentric rhetoric back in uh 2009 to 2010 2011 2012 um but uh he switched around he decided to go after corruption specifically because i believe that he tried to achieve two targets first uh he tried to address a much wider russian population even though it, um and many people uh claim uh that he doesn't like ethnic minorities and i i tend to believe those claims uh he still wants those votes within the russian states because every fifth a uh, citizen of the Russian Federation is is not as not an ethnic russian so he knows that um and potentially he wants to um garner at least some uh, support from that uh, portion of the russian uh, population um and at the same time um a fight against corruption is just a uh, is just something you cannot argue with it's uh, it's it's an exercise that was done by Lukashenko and it worked out really well for him. He uh, he managed to take over Belarus in the 90s. Um and at the same time, uh if he fights against corruption, it is something that uh, appeals to the west as well. So this way this way um he's not going to get any criticism from the uh, west uh, from the western politicians, the western media, and that is why the likes of uh, McFall are idolizing him, which is which just shows 
fundamental misunderstanding of what uh, Navalny is, at least from the perspective of someone like uh, Yevlinsky and Novodvorskaya. Uh, and hopefully that uh, that that uh, gets rectified eventually. And that is why we run these spaces. That's why uh, we see um, people from the Ukrainian side and people like me posting uh, arguments that um, people should be very careful whom they trust. Uh, they are, uh, we're, we're not trying to apply blanket hate on everyone Russian. We've got Denise here. That's why I like having Denise because <laughs> he provides valuable input. And there are people in Russia who I actually uh, could be really good. Someone like Karamur Um All right, so uh, we're kind of uh, getting close to the to the one hour mark. Um, I could uh, point out the most recent rhetoric that I've been observing from Navalny uh, and his uh, team at FBK, Fond Baribu Skarupci. We've got Arthur joining. So Fond Baribu Skarupci translates as uh, foundation, uh, anti-corruption foundation or uh, foundation uh, in fight against corruption. Uh, they have two YouTube channels. Uh, one of them is called Navalny Live. The other one is called uh, Popularna Politica or Popular Politics. Uh, they the rhetoric that I've been noticing from them, um, because I still follow their channels, I, I still like to hear what they have to say, is that they they do not support the war, but at the same time they do not point out uh, that uh, there's there's an act there's an act of genocide happening within Ukraine right now. Uh, I think I've heard only uh, them mentioning it once, and even then it was in the passing. Uh, they they don't talk about the past transgressions of the Russian state. They don't mention the the Russian invasion of Georgia. Uh, they don't mention the first and second Chechen wars. Uh, they they primarily focus on corruption. And even now, as the war is in, is going, they primarily talk about how the Russian army is so inefficient because the Russian state is heavily corrupt. Uh, the uh, one of the examples that somewhat shocked me is how the team on the Popularna Politica channel, the Popular po- Politics channel, talked about the inefficient choice of targets by, by the Russian cruise missiles. Um, the reason they brought it up because uh, every cruise missile is extremely expensive. They mentioned price targets ranging between two million to seven million dollars. Uh, they are indeed that expensive. At least those are the price tags that are disclosed by the Russian MOD. Um, and they were comparing um, the cost against strategic value of the targets that were hit by those missiles. So when you have a war regression and you've discussed the efficiency of the of the use of the Russian missiles, that uh, that just makes me believe that they want the Russian army to conduct a more efficient offensive operation. Uh, maybe I am misinterpreting it. Maybe that that's not what they intended to announced, but it sure as hell does look that way, at least to me and to some of the Ukrainians that I listen to. Uh, I don't know if Denise has a different insight into it, so, so feel free to jump in at any point. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think so, yeah. I really hate the entire team that Navalny got to this point, so uh, what they make now is quite a shit show, and uh, I've think almost all the time that I hear from them that it's something like insensible or yeah insensible I suppose that's the word because they don't think about any people or 
any things that happen, but they think about their political value, and I don't really like them. But uh, at the same time, they do something for Russian political landscape, and that's good, probably. But still, I don't really like them. So yeah, I'm a bad Russian for this. Uh, they are not the guys I'm a fan of. And I think that's uh, because of Navalny, who tried to find people who are not just as politically conscious as him. So he tried to find people who are just a little bit weak. And now they are acting for him. So yeah, that's the weapon that strikes himself. Yeah, I never thought about it this way, Denise. But yeah, I I agree. They 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 don't seem to be as shrewd as a uh, as one would expect uh, from someone who's uh, active in, in the political sphere. Uh, their analysis uh, of the situation tends to be very basic. Maybe it's done on purpose. Maybe they could produce a more efficient message, a more uh, thorough and insightful message, but. Uh, it could be the case that uh, they're just simplifying it to resonate with the Russian public. That could also be the case. But uh, no matter what, I still find it very appalling that they don't actually talk about the war crimes. They don't talk about the uh, the fact that this entire war is actually genocidal. Yes, Arthur? Yeah, the thing which is pretty scary is how little we've heard in Western media about Vladimir Karamorza and how much we hear about Navalny. Why is so little homework being done by journalists, politicians, and people of influence? Because the subtext of Navalny and the evidence that he's not what he claims is not very deep. I feel like Navalny may, might look like an easier solution to us uh, in terms of replacing Putin with someone that will, you know, maintain some stability compared to Karamurza. Or maybe we just, you know, don't think he has a chance. But then it's a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, I wonder what your opinion is. Yes, uh, I, I agree with you, Arthur. I think it's just a situation where, um, at least for now, the West tries to find the easiest solution, uh, the most prominent figurehead that will just replace Putin. But at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be only a quick fix uh, for the short term, but in the long run, it's, it's, it's no fix at all. Uh, what do you think, Denise? Uh, I don't think so. I think that Navalny have found the right words, and I think that he actually might follow them. Uh, because we don't need the next Putin or the next anti-Putin or the next, uh, like, middle-sized Putin. What we need is uh, to change something. And we need the change to happen, like, five or seven times to just make a difference. And what Navalny said be before he was arrested and before he was prosecuted this much was that if he becomes a president, he will only become the president to, to root for the next one, to root for the next president who will come after him. And that's a good thing. And that's uh, like the only healing thing for Russian politics that I can see. So at this point, I agree with him that there are a lot of things that I don't trust him and that I think he is quite illusional of. All right. Uh, there, <laughs> again, we found a point where we don't agree, Denise. And that's why I like having you around, uh, because we bounce half of, of each other opposing opinions. Um, I don't agree, <laughs> because absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
that's not my saying. It's a it's a, it's a saying by Machiavelli. And what we've got in the Kremlin and that coveted presidential seats within the Russian Federation is absolute power. So someone might be saying those words right now, but the moment they take that seat, those promises are null and void. They're gone. So what we really need, at least as the as the as uh, well. What the Russian people need and is the people of the neighboring countries need is a peaceful neighbor um, and that peaceful neighbor and democratic neighbor and actually prospering neighbor can be achieved only if there is significant de- decentralization and, de- and federalization of the Russian Federation. And by federalization, I mean true federalization. I don't I don't know if it's going to happen if someone like Navalny comes. I don't think so. We've we've discussed, and this brings us to the second point of this topic, because we've talked about opposition, now we're getting to the imperialism part. Uh, because uh, we've discussed uh, the economics of the Russian Federation already. Uh, we, we pretty much came to the conclusion that Russia is a colonial empire in its present federal form. Uh, oh, we, we lost Maggie. So if you, if you have uh, even someone like Navalny, or if you have as uh, someone, um, if, if you even change the uh, the way the Russian state is uh, organized uh, and make it a, a parliamentary um, federation where not a single person is running it, the economics of it simply does not uh, allow for it because uh, true uh, decentralization and federalization would imply a lower standards of living in the uh, in the metropole, specifically Moscow and Saint Petersburg, and I don't think the authorities would actually risk it because if people in Moscow are not happy, uh, anyone who's in power and anyone who's in charge would would lose their power quite quickly. So th- that is why I think I think holding the population of Moscow happy is the key to everything. It doesn't matter what people in the Far East think. It doesn't matter what people in Siberia think. It only matters uh, at the end of the day what people in Moscow and what people in St. Petersburg think. What do you think, Denise? Uh, right now, it happens just like that. Yeah, it's all dependent on the opinions from Moscow or St. Petersburg. But I don't think that that's the thing that is going to happen recently in some years, like a couple of years, because... Uh, we see how these people gain their voice. That's what I see from the latest protests when Moscow was quite complacent and uh, people in Siberia were just the heroes of the protests. Uh, so, yeah, I think they will gain some more voice. And I think that, uh, let's mention Navalny is the president right now. Uh, at least what he says is that he will bring more like steps to his power and he will just bring more restrictions to something he might do later on. And if that's the thing that happens, I'm with him. If it doesn't, uh, I'm not. So that's how I feel about him. And Right now, I think that he's not lying because he just suffered a lot and he's a person who looks like having something to say. So, yeah, I hope that if he comes to power, he doesn't abuse it and he brings some more stops to his power. Yeah, one can only hope. One can only hope. 
of course, it's it's not a it's not a given that uh, Navalny is going to take over, and because to be honest, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen in Russia in the next year or two or three or four. Uh, we're currently treading unknown waters. Um, of course, the situation is a lot more unstable than it was before the full scale invasion. Um, but uh, we can we can only speculate. Uh, someone like discussing why is it important to discuss Navalny? Because it is important to understand what he is. It is important to um, not to pin false hopes on someone who arguably has shady past. Let's be honest. Um, some of his past rhetoric is not something I support. Um, it's actually really shocking, especially if you there's there's even photographic evidence of him attending those far right rallies. Um, so, yeah. Uh, another point before we finish off and potentially opens for additional questions is um, the fact that his team is somewhat back to this ethnocentric rhetoric. It's not something that is being talked about, but it's something I personally notice. So it's my personal subjective observation. Could it could well very well be not the case, but there were at least a couple of instances where they try to they're trying to whitewash the Russian art, where they blame the war crimes and they blame they especially blame the massacre in Bucha on the sixty fourth regiments. Uh, which is primarily comp- composed of the ethnic mi- minority of Budats. Uh, they even had a guest speaker. I'm not going to mention his name, um, but if you've seen it, you've seen it. And uh, he he pointed out how the Russian VDV, who was there along with the 64th Regiment, are professional soldiers who would never do such a thing. So another thing that they really like pointing out how the uh, Kadyrov's uh, warriors, Kadyrovites, who are pretty much entirely Chechen, are the worst kind of war criminals. They they don't really frequently point out that it is the entire Russian army. I'm not trying to protect minorities here, by the way. I'm saying that every single one of them who is uh, who's representing the Russian Federation is responsible. So let's uh, let's not fool ourselves. It's it's both the minorities and the ethnic Russians. They're all war criminals, as far as I'm concerned. But uh shifting blames and trying to blame a specific group more so than some other group is just ridiculous i'm sorry um and this really lines up with navani's past behavior of 2009 2010 2011 so do i find it uh shocking no do i find it surprising no but it kind of shows what kind of future Russia might uh, might see in case someone like him takes over? Because uh, Russia is, let's face it, it's, it's not a uniform state. It's not a unitary state. It's a federation. There are a lot of minorities. Um, and it could be very well the case that uh, if someone like him takes over, uh, ethnic minorities might get suppressed. All right. So on that final point, Denis, do you, do you want to add anything? Oh, probably, but I don't think that uh, Navalny does even think about the minorities. And it's a big theme, and it's a big point to discuss, but I don't think that he even has enough like, consciousness to speak about it. And that's the bad thing about him, because he is fully concentrated on uh, like, local politics and corruption and all those stuff that happens all wrong. Uh, yeah, but I don't think 
but he is a person you should ask right now about any kind of uh, atrocities Russia is doing. And I think that uh, we have to wait for a moment when he comes out of prison and then he can tell what he thinks about. But right now, just me, I'm not speaking about any other person. I don't feel like I can speak about him badly. And that's just for right now. Uh, when he comes out, I have a lot of things that I can tell him all about the kitchen sink and so on. But right now, I can speak badly about him. So, yeah, uh, I personally have to wait. And what I think about his politics uh, is that he just doesn't have any clue about any of this because he was not prepared for this. And he was just the person who is thinking locally. Uh, yeah, so that's how I see it. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Thank you. No, Denise, I, I, I partially agree with you on this one. We, we shouldn't condemn someone on, on, on future crimes that they might perpetrate. Because uh, that's uh, that's minority report level stuff. <laughs> we don't know for certain what he's going to do. But the reason I'm bringing it up, because it's very important to be cognizant of someone, someone's past and someone's past rhetoric and someone's uh, someone's views, when especially when they have a lot of political influence or potentially could take over an entire nation that's uh, that's got a population of 140 million. Um, so, yeah. Uh, All right. I do agree with you. Yeah. And so... Uh... People should think about this, and people should remember these deeds that were made by him. But uh, it looks like right now we don't have uh, any other people who are just brave enough to do what he does. So right now we have to shut the fuck up and remember all the stuff just to come back with that a little bit later. And I hope we will, and I hope he will answer all the questions by himself. But right now I. Uh, I just don't think I can speak about him like that. I'm sorry. Yeah, completely understandable sentiments. Uh, the reason I brought up uh, Karamorza is it, that is someone I am personally rooting for. I really hope Russia's got a lot more people like him in store because at the end of the day, we do need uh, someone like Karamorza and, and and potentially even Nemtsov and maybe in the future popping up because uh, only the people like them can actually you know, truly democratize Russia and potentially decentralize it and uh, federal, truly federalize it. Um, and the reason it's uh, the, the title of the space is decolonization of Russia, because I still think that if the Russian Federation goes down the path of true federalization, it's not going to survive in its present present territorial form. Um, at the very least, uh, some of the republics in the Northern Caucasus will most likely are most likely to go in their own, their own separate way. Um, I, I can talk about the two Chechen wars in a, in a separate space, but uh, let's uh, let's not do this today because I, I, I'm of a, of a strong belief that um, as soon as Kadyrov is gone, uh, a third Chechen war is in the making. The, the all of the all of the conditions are satisfied. Um, but on that grim note, I'll hand off to Denise. And uh, oh, he left. What happens? Oh, that's unfortunate. All right. So any any questions? I don't want to run for too long because uh, I don't want to make this a lecture. All right, Arthur. Uh, is there? I know that Navalny is kind of a tinfoil hat uh, 
person you'd like to talk about anything you want to bring up before we finish off um uh, if i had slept more last night i would have some question ideas but yeah right now I, i'm mostly listening in all right we've got three yeah go ahead Faye. Now, Maddie, I've listened to you and others, and I know you're very well versed on this. Um, versus like the Muscovite, and and forgive me, everyone, I'm kind of basic on on this one, which is why I'm deferring to people with expertise. Uh, give, you know, there's always been this kind of, as far as I know, as an outsider, this strong Muscovite identity. How strong are some of these other kind of ethnic identities? You know. Or how strong have they remained is a better question in, in the face of kind of Moscovite domination and colonization with, in what we call, you know, the Russian Federation's borders. Because they don't seem like really, you know, they being the Moscovites really don't seem keen at all on even allowing anything outside of Moscovite culture to remain. And, you know, yeah, I'm kind of ignorant on this one. That's why I'm asking you. Because you know this stuff. Uh, sure, you're absolutely right. There's a very strong Muscovite identity. Um, the easiest way to answer this question is to talk about the ethnic minorities, because many of them did preserve their own, own cultural identity. Uh, I brought up the Northern Caucasus. Um, I should also bring up Tatarstan and Bashkatarstan. Uh, they, they are completely separate ethnic groups. But if we specifically talk about ethnic Russians themselves, they also have their own regional identities. Um, there are regional accents. Uh, there, they might be uh, somewhat subtle. It's uh, somewhat hard to listen to them. But when we come to the Muscovites um, or Muscovici, as they call them themselves, they have a very specific uh, accent that you cannot you cannot mistake for anything else. Uh, there is a very strong identity when it comes to Saint Petersburg, um, and there is a very specific identity when it comes to the areas of. Uh, southern Russia, north and north of Caucasus, uh, um, the area between Krasnodar and uh, Volgograd, um, and there's a somewhat of a separate identity of ethnic Russians living in Siberia. They call themselves Sibiriaks or Sibiriki. Um, it, but if if an ethnic Russian, at least from the anecdotal evidence that I've heard from some of the people I know who moved from Kazakhstan, ethnic Russians who moved to Russia. Um, some Russians didn't actually consider those Russians who came from ethnic Russians who from came who came from Kazakhstan to be Russians. That I found to be very surprising. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and the same applies within Russia as well. Uh, when someone from the regions moves into Moscow, uh, the local Moscovites do not consider them to to be someone who's uh, who's local. Some of those uh, rallies, political rallies that happened or used to happen in the early uh, 2010s um, had another slogan that they like to chant is Moskva для which means Moscow for Muscovites. So, yeah, there's a very strong uh, identity when it comes to that. We also have Catholicists. Catholicists, you had a question? Oh, yeah, thank you very much for doing this. It's a lot of information for me to absorb. Some of it's getting through. But um, can I ask you to just clarify, um, whenever I, oh, okay, uh, following the money, 
behind Navalny. Can you um, sort of summarize what uh, sources of money are are channeling to Navalny? Thank you. Yep, thank you, Catholicist. Something I should have brought up a long time ago, uh, <laughs> but I haven't, but you're absolutely right. When we're talking about uh, political parties or political figures, we always need to talk about money. Uh, the short answer is opaque. I don't have an answer, a complete answer for you. Um, as of now, I did mention the two YouTube channels that uh, his team is running. So they obviously are not making any ad revenue from those. Um, as of now, at least. I th- though, given that they're based outside of Russia, I think they're still being monetized. Uh, something uh, also imp- worth noting is that they they do take donations from people. So they have uh, donations coming from the regular Russian citizen, or th- those donations could be coming from the from from abroad as well. Uh, but Navalny himself uh, claims to have a past in uh, in commerce. Um, it seems like he was very successful in commerce in the 90s and early 2000s. At least that's that's those are his claims. And uh, based on those claims, he he had a net worth of at least a few million dollars. Um, in terms of other uh, sources of money, unfortunately, as of now, um, I I do not have a complete picture. I think nobody does, apart from Navalny's team. Um, and yeah, uh, again, I'll, I'll go back to the very first word that I provided to this answer, opaque. I'm sorry that I don't have a full answer. Oh, no, that's okay. It's usually when I when I hit some very complicated thing like this, it's always my first thought is always, okay, where's the money going to support whatever it is that, that that's being pushed? Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of money... Um... So Navalny's team has a piggy piggy bank or a fund set aside for any Russians who are currently protesting uh, within Russia. So anyone who's uh, who takes to the streets and uh, brings out a poster um, chanting slogans against the war or saying no to war, uh, they will get fined by the Russian state. So Navalny's team covers those fines and they will pay for those fines as long as the receipts are provided. Um, and they recently published a tweet saying how much they paid in fines and how much they covered in fines for those people. On the surface, uh, it seems like a noble thing to do. Uh, but when you scratch the surface, you realize that they're funding the Russian state. Uh, they're funding the war. Uh, on screen, you you have a question? Uh, while we wait for on screen to respond, any, any other question? Uh, anyone else? If not, uh, I really want to keep it under 19 minutes. Otherwise, it's going to be a long recording and people will simply not listen. Hi, Fo. Hi, hi, Maddie. Thanks for this interesting uh, discussion and conversation. I just wanted to ask uh, about what would be possibly the tipping point for the populations of Moscow or St. Petersburg to go to the streets and actually have something similar maybe to the Arab Spring. Uh, because apparently the lack of freedom and the lack of democracy uh, are not enough factors for them to go and protest. And the war in Ukraine also wasn't a uh, enough factor for them uh, to go. So what could that be, for example, the tipping point for them to actually go and make a change? Thank you. A very relevant question, Phoenix. Thank you. Uh... Sorry, I called you Fo. I just didn't see your entire name. 
Um, yeah, everyone is asking themselves this question right now. Why are not Moscovites protesting in mass? Because my feeling is that they're they're okay with the current situation for now. Um, one, a situation where that would really upset them, that would really intervene in their personal space and their personal lives and personal comforts is uh, mass mobilization. Um, so that is why we haven't seen it being announced. That's why Putin and his circle will never mobilize anyone from Moscow. They might uh, they might take volunteers from the Moscow region, but they will never mobilize. They will never do mass mobilization within uh, the main cities of the Russian Federation, specifically Moscow, Saint Petersburg. Um, another thing that uh, so how do we how do we deal with it? How do we make uh, the people of Moscow uh, go to this recent uh, protests? Uh, this was covered in one of the previous spaces, but to give you a quick rundown is uh, mass casualties um, in Ukraine. That is why uh, I will never stop arguing for more weapons to Ukraine. Um, mass casualties in a very short period of time. Uh, the Russian the Russian army needs to be fully crushed uh, in Ukraine. Uh, the Crimean Peninsula and Donbass and all the other occupied territories need to be uh, retaken by the Ukrainians. And the sanctions should not be lifted for the foreseeable future. Um, so the combination of those uh, things, uh, those three things, will create significant cultural shock uh, among the Muscovites, among the people of St. Petersburg, where they, they will be in a situation where they're suffering economically, but at the same time, they're the, the, uh, the impression of uh, the greatness of the Russian army and the Russian Federation and the Russian nation is utterly crushed. And at the same time, uh, they will go through the reverse Crimea effect because when the the Crimean Peninsula was an annexed, there was a significant boost in the popular support to the Russian government and Putin himself back in 2014. So if those three conditions are, are satisfied, I suspect, though I cannot guarantee personally that uh, the people in Moscow and the people in St. Petersburg will simply stop tolerating the, the situation uh, any longer. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, um, without getting too deep into that, the thing that worries me the most about Navalny or another similar character is, like, well, especially Navalny. Navalny's got some um, support network in the West and a lot of people who, you know, high visibility, people who trust him. So the reason I'm especially afraid of him is that if there is one man who could get to power in, in Russia and make us lift sanctions, that would be him. Thank you, Arthur. And on that rosy note, I think we'll end because, and that is why we've been doing this space, because we want to promote awareness of, again, we don't want to condemn Navalny. This is not the purpose, pur uh, purpose of this space. Uh, we want people to be aware of what kind of person he is, what kind of political moves he might make in case he takes over uh, so that people are not surprised um, because he's 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 been seen as a as an ultra nationalist already so if russia goes down the imperial path again <laughs> if he takes over it should not be shocking all right and on this uh, rosy note so let's end the space we ran for 90 minutes and uh yeah thank you everyone for joining thank you for hosting <laughs>